Here we go this morning. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. We'll look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. And we're coming to the final of the three transitions in the book of Galatians. Now, Paul began by establishing his qualifications. He then moved into the doctrinal section where he addressed the issue of justification. And the subject matter of the final verses and chapters of Galatians is going to be our sanctification. Now, it's clear that the most urgent matter in the church at Galatia was the fact that some were being pressured into going back into a works righteousness type of relationship with the Lord or even establishing it, establishing it by those works of the law, including circumcision. The issue in Galatia was justification by faith. Chapter 5 is going to introduce to us what I believe is the most pressing issue, the most urgent matter in the church today as our 12-verse transition or segue is going to lead us into one of the most distinct and clear descriptions in all of the epistles of the New Testament uh, or, or in the New Testament of the Christian life and how it is to be lived. Now, this whole process of sanctification begins in Galatians 2.20 by description, where Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, I'm dead to self. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it is Christ living in us that Paul is going to address in the balance of the book. And our verses are kind of the transition road as we switch from not the main theme necessarily, but rather another element of it to get us to our destination. And that is the subject of sanctification or Christ living in us and how we live out our life while still in the flesh by faith in him. Now, the subject is not exclusive to Galatians. We see it covered in other epistles as well, but it seems to be the primary issue of our day, and I'll tell you why in a moment. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, Paul said this, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk. Remember, walk is a meta metaphor for living out our Christian life and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. What are the next two words? Your sanctification. Your sanctification. It is God's will that we live sanctified. Amen. I'm sorry, what was the delay there? It, was... <laughs> it is God's will that we live sanctified. We just read it. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Now here's a, a couple of components of our sanctification manifested specifically in uh, Thessalonians as a struggle of the city where he said, you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. In other words, you ought to be able to live in moral purity in these fleshly bodies. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That tells us that the sanctified saint is different than the Gentile who doesn't know God. Amen? Amen. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. He warns of false teaching regarding sexual issues in the church because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness or immorality, 
but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this, that God has called us to holiness, does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek word hagiosmos uh, ref, uh, is referred to or found twice in these verses. It's translated in verse 3 as sanctification. Then it's translated again in verse 7 as holiness. Holiness means to live in a state of moral purity. It also means the effect of consecration. Now, you will not find the Greek term translated as consecrate in the New Testament, and there's a good reason for that. The word means to make clean or to make pure. Can we make ourselves clean? Can we make ourselves pure? No. That initial work, it can also mean to be separate, separate from your former self. Making us clean and making us pure is a work that is exclusive to the cross of Christ. He is the one who has made us clean. He is the one who has purified us, not ritual washings, not blood sacrifices. And actualizing this cleanliness or moral purity is by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, which is what sets us apart from our past or consecrates us and makes all things new. Now, this has been the subject of the first four chapters. And Paul, in his closing argument, will segue us into the balance of the book. Now, the subject matter in our day is of such great urgency and is established by the fact that there are preachers today who say that if you preach things like there has been, if there has been no change in your life, there's been no change in your eternal destiny, like C.H. Spurgeon originated that statement, is to preach a works righteousness or an earned or deserved salvation. They call it today behavior modification gospel, and they believe it is heresy and error. So let me ask you this. Was Paul's behavior modified after he met Jesus on the Damascus Road? Did he keep killing Christians? Or did he agree with God that that was a sin and he wasn't serving God? And was his life changed? Did Mary Magdalene keep being a prostitute after she met Jesus? Or after he cast the seven demons out of her, did her life look different than it used to before? Yes. Now, here's something else to take note of. Did Jesus, uh, Judas' life change after he met Jesus? Did Pilate's life change after he met Jesus? And listen, that makes an important point for us that we'll establish here later this morning. But this is the point that Paul is moving towards in chapter 5. Justification is solely by faith. Sanctification is the result of that faith. And sanctification doesn't save you. Hello? Sanctification doesn't save you, but it is a manifestation of having been saved. In other words... Coming to Jesus doesn't just change your destination eternally. It changes your life presently. <clears throat> Paul is going to begin with how coming to Jesus changes your thinking and then how changed thinking translates into changed living. Now, we have a lot of labels thrown around within the church today. There's all kinds of Christians according to the label makers of our day. There's charismatic Christians. There's even progressive Christians today, liberal Christians today, all associating themselves with the finished work of Christ on the cross, at least in their minds. But the fact of the matter is justification, which leads to salvation, is a biblical concept. And here's our title this morning. You either believe it or not. Believe it or not is our title. 
And listen, no matter the additive to the gospel, the message is corrupted when both either added to or taken away from that we will discuss in our time this morning. You either believe the Bible's message or not. Now listen this morning. There is no, I believe Jesus died to save me, but has no desire to change me gospel. There is no, I need to change and then Jesus will save me gospel. And listen, there is no, I need to believe in Jesus and be baptized gospel. And there is no, believe the parts you agree with and Jesus will save you anyway, gospel as well. You either believe it or not. Now, Paul is going to start with what the Bible frequently employs to make a point, and that is contrast. He's going to begin by contrasting liberty with bondage, free against being entangled, justified by law, contrasted against righteousness by faith, running well versus being hindered. And next week, we'll look at walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. And finally, he will contrast the works of the flesh against the fruits of the spirit. And we can get better clarity as to what it looks like to live the Christian life and be born again, which is, by the way, the only kind of Christian there is. Now, we've got an awesome journey ahead of us. So let's jump in from uh, to Paul's segue from justification to sanctification is the end result of being saved by grace through faith. We'll look at 12 verses. We'll start with six. So if you would stand and read with me, please. Galatians chapter five, verses one through six. Galatians five, one, read along, please. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify to, again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. <clears throat> Father, we ask your aid in our time together this morning, and we are thankful for it. We thank you, Lord, that every word on every page of Scripture is divinely inspired. God breathed as you described it. So, Lord, give us ears to hear it. Uh, give us a willingness to heed it. And Lord, not try and diminish it in any way because of pressures from culture or politicians or anybody else. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a book that we can either believe in or reject. And we thank you, Lord, that it's not subject to our uh, acceptance. It's fact presented as is. So teach us what we need to know today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul opens this section with an admonishment to stand fast in the liberty that we have in Christ. Now, stand fast means to be stationary. That's a literal meaning. The figurative meaning is to persevere. And listen, we're going to need perseverance in the coming days. Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Things are a-changing. We have an administration now that is anti-Israel, as we established at the outset, anti-church, anti-life anti all the things that we believe in, stand for, and hold dear. And we are being admonished, I believe, by the Holy Spirit through Paul to stand fast or to, to persevere through all that is coming our way. Now, this also reminds us, as he establishes this first contrast, 
liberty and bondage of the importance of context. Other places and this place in scripture has been abused and misused for uh, supporting abhorrent teachings that deny repentance as part of the gospel message. Now remember, what was John the Baptist's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was arrested and beheaded, and from that day forward, what did Jesus preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Paul is not saying that because we have liberty in Christ, all good works are bondage. He is saying that the law was bondage, and that demanding a Christian be circumcised makes them debtors to keep the whole law. Now, let me make our case for us here this morning through something Paul wrote to Titus in 3.8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, or include this in your teaching, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works so God will love them and save them. No. Does it say that? No. no. He says, I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Here's why. These things are good and, what's the next word? Profitable to men. Now listen, if good works are profitable to men and circumcision makes Christ unprofitable to you, then that means good works are distinct from keeping the law. So when somebody says there ought to be good works in the life of the Christian, they're not saying we're under the law or you need to go back to the law. Paul here says... That makes Christ unprofitable if you get back under the 613 statutes of the Jewish law, including circumcision. He says to Titus, it is good and profitable to live a life that is maintaining constantly good works within it. Now, Paul resorts again to some pretty hefty language to make his point. He says that those who become circumcised in an effort to become acceptable to God are estranged from him. And he says attempting to be justified by the law means you have fallen from grace. Now, is Paul saying you've lost your salvation? No, that's not what he's saying at all. Because here's something we need to remember. Grace is not a synonym for salvation. Grace is the vehicle or the mechanism of salvation. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not of works. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Now, listen, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but I need to bring it up again this morning. Grace is an issue that has been greatly abused today, even though it is one of the most wonderful aspects of the Christian faith. I need to point out to you, do you know how many times Jesus taught in great, on grace in his three and a half year ministry? None. Grace is not mentioned in Matthew or Mark. It's mentioned in Luke and John 62 times of the 163 in the New Testament. Grace is mentioned as a salutation. There's only one man who ever taught it as a part of biblical doctrine, and that was Paul in his letter to the Romans. And by grace, my glasses fell on the floor. And by grace, I'll pick them up. And the point is, there are some pastors today who you would think, listening to them, that grace is the only doctrine in the Bible. And they are abusing the grace of God. And it's happening all around us. And then Paul redirects the thinking of the Galatians through a phrase used seven times in the epistles for the coming of the Lord for his church. And he is coming again. 
And he says, listen, we don't live attempting to be justified by law, but instead we live eagerly awaiting the hope of the righteousness or the hope of righteousness by faith. Now, what does that mean? Paul will tell the church at Philippi in 3.20, for our citizenship is in Orange County. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. That tells us where Jesus is. And our Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter would say this in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by what? The power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. This is what Paul is talking about. This is Paul's message to the church at Galatia in these closing chapters. As a born-again Christian, we don't need to live entangled with trying to become acceptable to God. We live with the eager expectation of forever being with God when Jesus comes to get us and take us to the Father's house because we have been justified by grace through faith. Now, our topic is heavy, so our points are light. And our first is a bit tongue-in-cheek. And listen this morning. Believe it or not, salvation is only available to those unworthy of it. Believe it or not, salvation is available only to those who are unworthy of it. Therefore, we all qualify. I don't know why that response was so lacking. Maybe some here think they deserve to be saved. Got news for you. There's none good. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Amen? Now, this is what Paul says in verse 6. Listen, whether you're circumcised or not is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It doesn't do anything for you. doesn't make you more worthy. doesn't make you more acceptable. The fact is, salvation is manifested or expressed by faith working through love. And the word working in this context means to be active, efficient, or even effectual. In other words, anything other than being saved by grace through faith will be inefficient or ineffectual, and Christ will profit you nothing. Listen, we're not going to stand before Jesus someday and say, you know what, I was a good moral person. you got to let me in. And you know what he's going to say? Depart from me. Never knew you. No clue who you are. We can't say, you know what, I had a lot of good works. I did a lot of good things. Gave all my goods to the poor and, and bought... You should have seen how many shoes I got for Run to Rescue. <laughs> Bought out the whole shoe store practically. Listen, what's that of profit to you? If you're trying to earn acceptance to him, he says Christ is of no profit to you whatsoever. It is the gift of God. We have been gifted with God's offer of salvation, and therefore it is only the unworthy who qualify for being saved, which is all of us. Now, faith will be an efficient and effectual or will be efficient and effectual, I'm sorry, through love. Now, what exactly is he talking about? I think uh, James captured the idea. And when the scripture was being canonized, there were a lot of biblical scholars who looked with suspicion upon the book of James. Martin Luther even called it the epistle of straw because it focused on works. But actually what it was focused on was sanctification. That is the result of justification by faith and accepting the gift of God of eternal life. James would put it like this in 2.14 to 20. 
what does it profit my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? The implied meaning is, can that kind of faith, absent of any good works, save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, he gives an illustration now, and one of them, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Did Paul not tell Titus a good works are profitable? He says here, this is unprofitable. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God. James takes off the gloves like Paul often does. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is what? Yeah. is dead. It's not active. It has no actualizing factors uh, in it. It can't do anything for you. It's just simply religion is what he's saying. Now, when we realize we are unworthy to be saved and that all human efforts are ineffective in warranting salvation and that we are saved by the gift of God's grace combined with our faith in Christ, manifestations of loving God will be present in our lives in the form of good works. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, that others, when they see our good works, the end result is glorying the Father who is in heaven. And this is what Paul is talking about. Listen, we're not working to try and earn anything. We're working to say, thank you, Jesus, for saving my wretched soul. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. I want to spend my days giving glory to the Father who is in heaven. And I not, not only want to work, I want to work hard for you that you might receive Glory for all that you have done and who you are. Now, to tell people they have to do this or that or not do this or that in order to be saved is to entangle them with things that can't save them anyway. And James is talking about the manifestations of salvation in the life of the believer. He's not talking about reaching the lost. He says if faith doesn't manifest itself in love, uh, manifesting itself in good works, is that actually saving faith? He then says faith cannot be limited to believing in God. Demons do that. But saving faith is visible and can be seen by others. That's why he posed the statement, you show me your faith without your works, I'll present evidence by my works that I have an actualized faith in Jesus Christ. Now that means while the unworthy are all candidates for salvation, the saved don't live like they used to. Amen. Jesus changes us and the evidence in scripture is plentiful. Seven through 10, you ran well, Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Now, Paul employs one of his favorite metaphors about the Christian life being like a race. We're running, and we're running to come in third. No, we're running to do what? Win. I'm not going to say what I said before, that second place is the first loser. I'm not going to say that this morning. But we're not running to come in second, right? We're running to win. That's how Paul would present this. So he says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying what? The truth. the truth. 
hindered you from obeying means to cut you off or who got you off course? Who pushed you off the established course of living for God? And this reminds us that most errant beliefs come from erring teachers. And we have a lot of that around today. Persuasion here means treacherous deception. And Paul says, treacherous deception is not from the Lord. He then adds a very Jewish metaphor illustration when he reminds them that a little leaven leavens what? The whole lump. Now, Jesus told the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And that was a warning and should be understood as be careful about false or heretical teaching and living. And Paul here says that the problem with leaven is that it spreads through the rest of the lump. Now, let me give an example here. From Luke chapter 12, 13 to 15, one from the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Let me read that last statement again. Take heed and beware of Covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Are there people today who under the banner of Christianity teach that the Christian life consists in an abundance of possessions? Yes, yes there are. This is leaven. Oh, that was super weak. This is leaven. And it impacts everything else that comes with it. Do not buy into it. And Paul warns that false teaching like yeast spreads and permeates those who hear it. And the converts in Galatia, while they may have been few in number, the error would eventually impact the entire church. And Paul's point being that one small deviation from the message could destroy the entire system, so to speak. And if that were circumcision being made necessary for salvation, the whole salvation by grace alone through faith alone system would fall. Now, Paul says, I am confident, however, that the Lord will straighten you out on this. He'll set your thinking straight. That means that Paul is saying that he believes the Lord will lead his people away from bad teaching. That tells us that the Lord wants us to get away from bad teaching and heretical teaching. Now, listen, when it comes to God's word, here's something else. You either believe it or not. You ready? Personal sincerity is not a substitute for biblical accuracy. Personal sincerity is not a substitute for biblical accuracy. It's pretty likely that amongst these Judaizers, there were those who were sincere in their beliefs, who were thinking, you know what? Listen, we've had this law for 1,500 years. It kept us in communion with God, so to speak. It was what we practiced every day. It impacted our daily life for a millennia and a half. How can it all of a sudden have nothing to do with our relationship with the king of the Jews? I'm sure that there were those who were sincere in their error. And there are those today who sincerely believe in the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it message. They are sincere in that. But listen, it's still leaven. There are those today who sincerely believe that you must be baptized in order to be saved, but it's still 
11. Sincerity doesn't replace biblical accuracy, nor is it its equivalent. Now we know that there are also those who intentionally lead people astray in an effort to gain a following or even personal prosperity. Are there people who are fleecing the flock of God for money and garnering for themselves hundreds of millions of dollars and living lifestyles that uh, we're all going to live someday in heaven? Amen. Are there people doing that today? Yes. And Peter said in 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in what? Destructive, Destructive heresies, even or including denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Peter saying God is against destructive heresies. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness. Remember what Jesus said to the man who said, hey, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. Jesus talked about the covetousness that's not to be a part of our lives. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. And the Lord is saying, even though their judgment may not have been instantaneous, it's coming because God is against destructive heresies and false teaching. Now, one other thing we need to consider, because leaven is a metaphor for including things that do damage to the gospel message. We could also say that leaving out portions of the gospel message or doctrine is equally as dangerous and as leavened in that figurative sense. Now, there are many today who are sincere in their desire to be gracious and loving. But this again is nothing new. And it makes our point from what Paul was dealing with in the city of Corinth, a, a very carnal church, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 6. Paul said this, it is actually reported, you can hear how stunned he is. He's saying, I cannot believe this is happening in the church. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Now remember, he's in a place and a culture uh, uh, where a lot of pagan deity worship uh, included prostitution and temple prostitutes. And Paul's saying there's something happening in the church that even the pagan Gentiles don't do. Then he names it. Did you catch that? Yeah. Then he names it. He says that a man is sleeping with his stepmom, his father's wife. And then he says this, and you are puffed up and have not mourned. This hasn't broken your heart that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. And then Paul says, for I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit have already what? Judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. And then listen to this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, meaning with me in agreement, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to who? Satan. Satan. For what? Destruction. The destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then he says this, your glorying in your actions is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? He says, you know what? You keep allowing this in the church and it's going to spread through the church. Paul says that not doing what the church should do is as risky as allowing false teaching to continue and is an open door for apathy towards sin in the church. Now listen this morning in this very quiet room for some reason. We must never, say never. never. We must never become accepting of the things the Bible has identified as sin under the banner of grace. We must never become accepting of the things the Bible has identified as sin under the banner of grace. And this is what the church at Corinth was doing, and Paul rebuked them for it. Now, do you believe the Bible? Yes. Do you believe that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Yes. Now, there is a trend in the church today of accepting sexual behaviors that the Bible has forbidden in the name of tolerance and love. This is leaven. It is not to be allowed within the church. So if a Bible teacher teaches, we must have grace and accept all sexual preferences as normative within any culture and society and therefore church, do we listen to them anyway? No. no. Do we buy their books anyway? No. Do we support their ministries anyway? And listen, this is rampant in the church today. And Paul's warning, Jesus' warning, is a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, the church at Corinth may have been sincerely not wanting to seem harsh. And I think there are some today who are sincerely not wanting to seem harsh. And they are wanting to seem loving. And Paul said, you know what, Corinth? The hard thing is the right thing because the matter is not pleasing society or overlooking this man's sin. The matter is his eternal soul. Amen. Turn him over to Satan. Let him experience the consequences of being ostracized by the church. Let him experience the pain of being all alone and the destruction of the lust of the flesh that his soul might be saved. Now, we know from 2 Corinthians that the man did repent. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. And you know what Paul told the church? Hey, listen, it's when he's sinning that you need to deal with him. And when he repents, you need to welcome him back lest he become, uh, be overcome by too much sorrow. And this is how we deal with things in the church today. Amen? Amen. Now, we have a group in our day, the, the technical name or the doctrinal uh, theological name would be the antinomians, but they're called the free grace movement today, who basically, hey, just anything goes. As long as you believe, you're in. Doesn't matter what you do. After you come to Jesus, you can do whatever you want because we're not saved by works. And again, good works and the law were separated according to our text and what we looked at earlier, right? right. Now, they basically teach those who believe that repentance is... Uh, necessary are errant in what they teach and believe and only believing is necessary for salvation what did james say even the demons go that far and he even took it a step further he said and they're scared of him they tremble now they teach there's no sanctification to follow justification and they may be sincere but they're sincerely wrong and therefore like other things that Paul has mentioned, other places we've read in Scripture, their teaching is leaven. 
And you know why it spreads? It spreads because it appeals to the flesh's desire to be saved and still live for the flesh without any fear of consequences. And the truth is, like the church in Corinth, they're putting people's souls at risk because sincerity is not the equivalent to biblical accuracy. We need to just read the Bible and accept it as is, including its definitions of sin. Listen, should we love the homosexual community? Absolutely. Did Jesus die for them? Is he unwilling that they should perish? But listen, didn't he say, or doesn't the Bible say, all have sinned? And we can't put them in a special classification of having some type of free pass. The Bible says homosexuality is a sin. So we're not doing them any favors by saying, you know what, you don't have to change, you can still come in. What about the rest of us? Doesn't the liar have to quit lying? Doesn't the thief have to stop stealing? Doesn't the adulterer have to start being faithful? And why does the homosexual have to repent of that? They do, right? And again, you know, you can make the argument, uh, nature, nurture, all those other things, but it doesn't matter uh, whether you're born with homosexual tendencies. There are people who are born liars, sneaks and cheats, right? They all have to repent. So, so does that community as well. And we're not doing them any favors by saying, as sadly, another prominent Christian pastor and author came out over the weekend and said, I apologize to the LGBT community for hurting them with my teaching. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but his initials are Max Lucado. <laughs> Don't buy the books. Don't listen to the teaching. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Is it tragic? Yes. Heartbreaking? Yes. Robbie Zacharias, just, I don't even get it. One of the greatest minds that we've seen in this age, wonderfully knowledgeable, gifted communicator, and now we can add to that pervert. It's tragic, isn't it? And listen, there are some within the ministry who said we made mistakes by not doing what Paul told Corinth to do when we saw the signs that he was abusing others sexually. Now listen, sincerity is not a replacement for biblical accuracy. Amen. Like the church in Corinth, we can't be putting people's souls at risk under the banner of grace. Amen? Amen. Now, 11 and 12, and we'll wrap it up. Paul says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, Paul had mentioned those who trouble you. He mentioned he who troubles you uh, earlier and that they're going to experience God's judgment. And Paul said, whoever he is. Now, most commentators think that this means Paul didn't know who the chief teacher amongst the Judaizers was, who was forcing them or getting them on cor- or off course from the message of salvation by grace through faith. I don't necessarily agree with that for this reason. Paul had tons of encounters with the Judaizers. Read the book of Acts, Acts 15.1. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's exactly what was being taught in Galatia. Paul had multiple encounters as they chased him from city to city with this group. He even went as far to record in 2 Corinthians 11.24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Believe me, he knew who his adversaries were. 
I think what Paul is saying was more likely this. God is going to deal with this man no matter how exalted his position may be in the eyes of others. God is not the respecter of persons. Amen? And this is what Paul, I believe, is saying. I don't care how revered this guy is. I don't care who he is. I don't care what his reputation is. I don't care what his office is. He is leavening the church of Galatia, and God's going to straighten him out. Amen. And Paul makes the point by implying that the Judaizers were saying that he taught what they taught, and Paul says, if that's true, if I'm teaching that you have to be circumcised, why are they still persecuting me? After all, the offensive portion of my message, of the cross, that is, would have been removed. And he says something that would, would cause many in our day to shudder in offense or to be shocked in that he wishes those who preach circumcision would go ahead and castrate themselves. Wow is right. Well, listen, the world was under Roman domination at the time. And there were many Roman colonies, and even here in Asia Minor, Rome had dominant control. And while Rome was its own entity and had conquered the Greeks, they adapted much of Greek culture, including some of the elements of the governmental system, the Senate, and things of that nature. But they also adopted many of the pagan cults of the Greeks, including the cult of Sibylle in the region of Asia Minor, specifically in Galatia. She was known as the goddess of the mountains. She was associated with agriculture, and therefore worshiping her was important to the uh, agricultural process. And all the priests of Sibylle were castrated. And thus, to a region where this would be well known as a practice, rather than being the vicious statement some would accuse Paul of saying, I think what Paul is saying is this. If you're going to demand circumcision as necessary for salvation, why don't you just go all the way and join the cult of Sibylle and castrate yourselves? If that's going to earn you something, why don't you just be all in? Now, that simple statement tells us all we need to know about being accepting of error under the banner of grace. Paul says, hey, you may as well castrate yourself and become a pagan worshiper if you're going to infiltrate the gospel with this element uh, that is untrue. Now, our final point comes from the statement Paul makes at the end of verse 11, and the offense of the cross having ceased. Now, the Jews and therefore the Judaizers were offended at the fact that being saved by grace through faith eliminated all personal worthiness or achievement aspects from the salvation message for having the sacrificial system, all the rituals, all the washings, all the observances, and basically casting them aside and the cross basically making those things uh, and through Jesus all of them being fulfilled, at least their intended meaning. And therefore this was an insult to them. They were offended at this and Paul's saying, hey, if I remove the component that was offensive, why are they still after me? I'm not teaching that way at all, distancing himself from false teaching. Now, here's our point. It's a bit of a zinger, so are you ready? Okay. Believe it or not, God's will is to save our souls, not cater to our opinions. Amen. Believe it or not, God's will is to save our souls, not cater to our opinions. It's likely that the argument from the Judaizers with Paul was, what's the harm in keeping a portion of the law? 
We're not saying you have to observe the other 612. We're just saying, you know what? You need to be sanctified as an outward sign of an inward work uh, uh, through circumcision. It's just a point of identification. It's nothing more. How is that bad? Paul says, uh, here's how it's bad. It makes somebody estranged from Christ. It means they've fallen from grace. It puts them in bondage when Christ died to give them liberty. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready. Next two words. And next three words. We're in an out of season season right now. Convince, rebuke, exhort. That's what the word of God does. With all long suffering. That's the attitude of the teacher and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from what? The truth. The truth and be turned aside to what? Fables. Fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions that come from preaching. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, the Holy Spirit is very calculated here with its choice of verbiage, including the English word fables. And there's a huge difference between a myth and a fable. We have all these mythological creatures, flying horses like Pegasus or uh, gods with winged feet. And uh, these other things that we, we know have no uh, factual basis. But a fable is quite different. And, and you know what a fable is. And I'll prove that you know what a fable is. And here's why it's so dangerous. Here's a fable. You ready? Yeah. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. That's a fable, right? Is there such a thing as old women? Is there such a thing as shoes? Is there such a thing as a lot of children? Is there such a thing as an old woman who lives in a shoe with a lot of kids? No. You see, this is what a fable is. A fable incorporates reality with fantasy and makes it into something completely different. And that tells us just because somebody uses the same vocabulary that we do, we need to look into their dictionary. Amen. What are they talking about? I, I shared, it popped in my head at first service, a friend that you all prayed for if you were here with us some years ago that I grew up with. We were in the same uh, musical uh, group at our high school. Our uh, musical director was a Mormon, and he was a Mormon missionary all the time at school. And this young uh, guy that I grew up with, uh, raised he's an Italian, raised Catholic, abandoned the Catholic faith, became a Mormon under the influence of our teacher, was a Mormon for 35 years. And we were, and I called for you guys to pray for him. He showed up at church a couple of times, and I believe before he died, he got saved. But we were talking back and forth online, and for some reason, the issue of Elohim came up. And uh, he said to me, Oh, I love that. I've taught about Elohim many, many times. Well, my Bible has Elohim in it in the very first verse. In the beginning, Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. He has Elohim in his belief system. My belief system says Elohim is the uncreated God who speaks things into existence. His belief system says Elohim is a former human being who achieved God's status, who physically impregnated Mary, who had two sons. One was named Lucifer and one was named Jesus. And the two sons came to Elohim, presented their message of salvation or method of salvation to a planet called Earth. And God rejected Lucifer's means 
of saving the earth or redeeming the earth and accepted Jesus' method of, of saving the earth. And the two brothers have been fighting ever since. And therefore, Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. That's who Elohim is to him. Is to him. That's not who he is to me. Elohim is the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he did not impregnate Mary. She supernaturally conceived and she gave birth to the male child prophesied in Genesis 3.16 in the garden where he said, uh, his, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of uh, a man who had come through the nation of Israel. Listen, just because people say things with terms that we're familiar with, that doesn't mean it's accurate. We need to listen to the whole story. Now listen, Satan is not a fool. And believe me, he knew full well what God meant in the garden when he prophesied of this coming son who would bruise his head in the future. You know how we know that he got it? Because even before Israel was a nation, he was trying to wipe them out within the Egyptian bondage. Did not Pharaoh kill all male children under two years? Why? Why would he do that? He was after the male child. Listen, he well understood because we can see that under Herod, when the one who was born king of the Jews, uh, his birth had been announced, what did Herod try and do? He tried to kill every male child according to the time the wise men told him they'd seen the star in the east because they were after the Messiah. Why? Because Satan well understood that this male child had the capability to bruise his head, meaning destroy him and his efforts, and he uh, bruised his heel. But the fact is, listen, he's been teaching teachers to teach things that sound Christian that are lies from the pit of hell and including language that we're all familiar with and accepting of. Listen, it was a tragedy when uh, Barack Obama was sworn in and there was a local pastor here who used the name in, in uh, an effort to be tolerant and more accepting of other religious belief systems when he prayed, he prayed in front of the whole nation in the name of Isa, the name that the Muslims use for a character they call Jesus, Jesus who is subservient to the prophet Muhammad. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's a completely different Jesus. Do you know that the Muslims believe in the second coming? Did you know that? The Muslims believe in the second coming. Do you know what they believe Jesus is going to do when he gets back? Jesus is going to say the Jews and the Christians were wrong. Islam's the only way. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to get married. He's going to live a life. He's going to tell everybody that he was, or they were wrong in believing Judaism and Christianity. He's going to die, and he's going to be buried next to Muhammad. That's in Second Opinion 666. It's not in our Bible, right? So listen, we need to dig deeper than the vocabulary. We just don't listen to people because they say things that make us feel good. If it's doctrinally in error, it has a capacity to leaven the whole lump and lead us fully astray and make us estranged from Christ and cause us to push off the message of grace and all the other things that Paul is warning us of. And listen, there are millions today who believe that being a Christian is validated solely by the claim and nothing else. I'm a Christian, and that means I am. Do you want to see... How many people believe that? Just go on social media this afternoon and say, Joe Biden is not a Christian. What will happen? You will be greeted warmly by the fact checkers and banned to cyberspace for all eternity. Now, listen, some people would have a problem with that kind of statement. Listen. 
Christians do not support killing children in the womb. Christians may have made that mistake in the past, but it breaks their heart. They repent of it, and they recognize that it was wrong. They don't try and justify it, saying, my body, my choice. Listen, that's one of the stupidest statements that have ever been made. That's not your body inside of you, woman. That's somebody else's body. You're just an incubator that God is bringing another human life into the world. And yes, you may have played a role in the procreative process, but that doesn't give you the right to kill a child in the womb. And there are some today, there are pastors today who are saying that is a right before God. And after making a statement like that, why in the world the sanctuary isn't empty is beyond my understanding. We don't put up with that kind of stuff. And that's what Paul is saying. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. It matters what people teach. And I've already gone over, and we've still got lots of message left. (laughs) But let me just close with this, and I'll close quickly. You okay? We are moving towards the tribulation. Very quickly. Things have escalated of late in just a shocking manner. It's unbelievable how quickly we're moving toward the end of that birth pang-like progression. There are things that will ultimately be fulfilled during the tribulation that are experienced to some degree prior to the tribulation, and we're seeing them now. People are losing their jobs because of their conservative positions or posts on social media that contradict or conflict with the progressive mainstream thinking of our day. And listen, what we need to recognize is we follow a book that is contradictory to the global movement in our world today and to this administration that has just taken power in our country. Those who believe this book after the rapture and during the tribulation will not be allowed to buy or sell unless they worship Satan and take the mark of his false Christ or the number of his name on their hand or forehead. Those who refuse to take the mark will be beheaded for their faith. Listen, the groundwork is all being laid right now. You can't say stuff like that. It's hate speech. You can't say that this is a sin, even though the Bible says it does. That's hate speech. You're guilty of a crime against humanity, and you need to be punished. You need to be tried in the court of public opinion. And listen, the progression towards what we just described is well underway, and I believe it took a huge and irreversible leap forward on January 20th of this year. But listen, God is still unwilling that any should perish. But he is just as unwilling that we, do, we redefine what causes people to perish. His word stands fast in the heavens. It is unchanging. He is not in negotiations with humanity or progressives or globalists about how right and wrong ought to be defined. He already established that. And it is not going to change because culture wants it too. Amen. So, listen. The Bible said in the last days there will be perilous times that we're in them. Yeah. And compromising what we believe to appease the masses is not going to cause us or enable us to stand fast. We have to stand on the word of God. Immovable during a time where what can be shaken will be shaken. And we don't need to be shaken if we stand on the word of God. And listen, there are going to be pressures in the coming days unlike any of us have ever seen or experienced. 
but much like what other Christians have been going through in other countries for millennia. It's just, it's not new, it's just new here. So we need to be ready, right? Well, let me just say it like this. Christians in the United States need to toughen up. And we need to quit rolling over every time somebody in a place of power, some celebrity, says you're wrong for believing that. Because the fact is, we follow someone who is greater than any celebrity, any political power. We follow Almighty God who speaks things into existence, who has the right and authority to judge the nations. And someday he's going to do just that, according to what? Standards of his word. So we don't want to mess with it. Because souls are at stake. We're not doing anybody any favor by abusing the grace of God and teaching things that it is not. It is the mechanism by which God sent his son into the world to save us. And therefore, we received our salvation. Grace is a wonderful thing. We don't ever want to diminish it. But one of the things I love, Pastor Chuck's book, I know many of us have read it, why grace changes everything. My conclusion was this. The first thing grace changes is you. Yes. Me. It's not inactive. It's not passive. It's something that transforms us. And the biblical word is sanctification. Setting us apart from what we used to be. I am glad God is still doing that. Aren't you? Yes. Pray with me, please. And Father, we're again grateful for your matchless word. We thank you for the things that we have read and heard today. And we thank you that you uh, had a man like Paul, uh, who was, as uh, described, learned in Scripture. One who uh, had mastered that which was necessary to become a Pharisee himself. And Lord, we, we know that he knew the book. And we know you used him to write portions of the new covenant. And for that, we're grateful. But we thank you, Lord, in times such as these for his boldness. Uh, even knowing in his descriptions uh, uh, of his life experience as a Christian and how much persecution uh, he encountered a day and the night in the sea and perils of uh, robbers and countrymen and constantly traveling and hunger and thirst often, five times uh, having been beaten uh, by the Jews, stoned and, and left for dead, all the other things that he experienced. But Lord, may we learn from the apostle that he never got off point. He never changed his message to avoid persecution. He never watered it down in order to accommodate the demands of a pagan culture around him. And he certainly didn't submit to heresies within the church that had come in. And Lord, help us to have that kind of willingness in these last days, in the midst of these perilous times, in the midst of these that precede the great tribulation that we'll all escape from. So help us, Lord, to be bold. And I pray, Lord, as the book of Acts records, that when they prayed, the place they were in was shaken. Shake us up, God. And may the end result be the same, that we would speak the word of God boldly, even in a time where it will cause us to be hated like never before in these United States. And with that we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.